Hello and welcome to Northeast Christian Church online service. We are so happy to have you with us. Please be sure to follow NECC on all social media platforms. And to listen to all our past messages, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the service. Hey, uh, just a quick note. By the way, great to be back in the saddle. Um, I am, first of all, thank you for all that helped with the funeral service for Mark Jensen yesterday and um, Jim and Jane watching online and, and all that crew or any of you that are here from that service yesterday. It was beautiful just listening to them share about the memories in a, and, and to see something that could have been even more painful, it was as if they were just kind of lifting each other's burdens, and it was just beautiful to see so many of you a part of that as well, too. And uh, I just, it, where would we be without Jesus, you know? God's not looking for reasons to keep people out of heaven. He's looking for reasons to get them into it. And uh, I'm so grateful for the hope of Christ. Uh, one last thing, tonight is what we have not done in a long time is we're meeting with all volunteer teams, whether you usher, you help with music, uh, media, uh, you name it, I could just keep going, serve our city, and we're just meeting for an hour, but what I'm encouraging you to do is come in your favorite sports gear, or you could bring a football. I'm going to be wearing my judo gi just for it, and we'll have a mat out here if anyone wants to challenge me. I've got an extra gi. And uh, the only thing that we ask is, is if you're a professional diver, not to wear your Speedo. That's all we ask. <laughs> but we'll just have some fun with it. So Pastor Dylan's like, I don't have any sports gear and I play chess. And I'm like, but he said, I have one of those foam fingers for the Patriots. So I was like, there you go, dude, just, just bring it. So maybe you're a track runner or anything like that. It's, it's, uh, it's all good. So I'm going to open us up in prayer. Uh, I will say also, we have one more service in the horizon. I want to welcome Patty Zerley, who's watching right now. Uh, a live stream. Her husband was one of the greatest big brothers and mentor friends that I've ever had in my life. And this has been a really rough stretch between losing uh, Uncle Bobby and then losing my deep mentor and big brother, Chuck Zerley. And we've been talking on a daily basis and they're going to have the service here on September 10th. And uh, if you want to learn what it's like to comfort those who mourn, you are just a church that's just filled with so many loving people. If you know Chuck, I encourage you to come here. If you're like, I just want to lift somebody's burden, you, you are welcome to join us. Um, he, was, he was the director of Brooklyn Teen Challenge when uh, I worked with him one summer there. He and his wife, Patty, opened up a thing called the Fishnet Cafe on South Street in Philadelphia, which um, is within a yard of hell. There's just that place is just out of control. And one of the most faithful people I've ever met in my life. And so with that in mind, I just want to encourage you to be there uh, if you're able to and um, encourage her. If you know them, especially I'm thinking of those of you from Zion North Point who, who know them. Um, where would we be without Jesus? Uh, there's, he is, there's a reason why being with him is called the blessed hope. Paul said it like this, if our hope 
is in Christ is only good for this life, we should be pitied because there are a lot of great things I can do with my time. There are a lot of ways I could, if, if, if morality didn't matter, if, if might is right, if, if evolution and survival of the fittest is correct, then basically we have no laws. Why are we even bothering abiding by them? Take what you want and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But the reason why we come in subjection to Jesus Christ is because of his love that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And he made a way for us to, to spend eternity with him. And I'm so grateful for that. However, as we go through this life, we face trials. How many of you have faced a trial in the past year? Raise your hand. How many of you have, are facing about like three or four trials currently right now, simultaneously? Uh, welcome to life. And this is why James is so great. And uh, there's nothing special about what we do here. We believe in preaching through books of the Bible because, first of all, nobody could ever say, oh, you're preaching at me, you're trying to deal with me, or, or anything like that. But we do it because God brings up the things we need to hear in the way that we need to hear them when we need to hear them. And, and going through books of the Bible helps us do that. And I think uh, today is going to be very relevant for all of you, especially those of you that are going through a difficult time, a trial, a disappointment, depression, discouragement, uh, devastation, any of those kind of things, because James initially here is trying to help us see what faith in God looks like when it's moving, when it's in motion. It's one thing to talk about philosophy and talk about ideas and argue about politics and argue about theology and religion and all those things. It's another thing to make those things come in alignment with your life. And James is going out of his way to help us all know what it's like to have faith in motion. So if you join me in prayer, we're going to kick this off and believing that God's going to kick joy into your life in the process. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for being here. He, Lord God, the word of, the, uh, of your spirit and your truth, man can't do what you can. And so I ask you would let your word accomplish what you sent it for, showing us through James what the physics of trial and tribulation look like in the life of a believer. In Christ's name, amen. Before, really, James opens up his book like this, and he, he, says, he says it like this. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's lots of ideas of who, there are three Jameses in the New Testament. There's Peter, James, and John. That was the tight James that was the son of Zebedee, and he was, he was close to Jesus. And then there is one of the other disciples. He, he is uh, James, the son of, a, of Alphaeus, and we really don't know much about him other than his name. And then there was one last James, and his name is James. He was nicknamed James the Just, and he was the brother of Jesus. Could you, you, you know, if maybe you've been in church before and you've heard people talking about the story of Jesus where uh, Jesus has a bunch of people around him and someone says, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside. And, and Jesus looks at everybody and says, who, who are my mother and brothers? And uh, God bless you, by the way. <laughs> he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says, he says uh, uh, those who do the will of God. So there was a while, a season, where his family, his brothers, maybe his brothers and sisters, uh, that had Joseph as their biological father and Mary as their mother. They had a shared mother, so they were half 
siblings. Maybe there was a, a time where they just are like, Jesus, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Probably something similar to what Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament thought about him. But when, you, when we look through history, there's a lot of different things that make me think that most likely this is the James who wrote it because all of the stuff that you have in that sheet of paper when you came in, I'm not going to read it to you, but we believe that those handouts, these things are good. I call for the seat and for the street. So you can look at it because your mind thinks you, you get, it's sometimes listening to somebody, why not put your uh, spare attention on this? And then taking it to the street, you take it home, or whether it's uh, for the view and later on for you. That just rhymes and that works. But there's good information in here. What's amazing about James, the brother of Jesus, is that he became the head of the Jerusalem church, and his reward was in persecution. He was pushed off of the pinnacle of the temple, the very same place where Satan told him to jump, and angels would catch him. They brought the brother of Jesus to that same spot and just shoved him off. Probably as, maybe as a statement, I don't know, but... He goes on and he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. What's really interesting about the book of James is this, is that there's a time in Christianity where it was pretty much Jewish. That it was Jesus who was a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish rabbi with disciples, and he started out, and it was almost initially at the beginning odd when he spoke to people who weren't Jewish, Samaritan woman. Syrophoenician woman, um, the Roman centurion and his servant. It, it was almost, it's not the center of the story. Jesus starts with a people and a people group and the gospel spreads out from there. But in the Old Testament, when the Jews were scattered around the world, it was called what, what they know and what we know historically as the diaspora, which means that they were all living in Israel, but because of war and because of difficulty, they were scattered around the world. And so he says to this group of people that he's writing this letter, this epistle, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And if you read through this epistle of James, it is clearly Christian, but it's also clearly Jewish. So basically, you could pick up this as a Jewish person and be like, I vey, this is good teaching, you know, we get this, yeah, uh-huh. And then as a Christian, you can pick it up and be like, oh, tame the tongue, yeah, I know that one. Um, you know, and all these different things that are really great. And what I love about James is, is that he's a gospel of common sense. He's like, great, you've got faith, you've said a prayer, you go to church. Now let your life match your lips. And so then he just kind of says, let me just touch on some topics that are common to all of us where we need to line up our lips with our life if we say we're going through it with Jesus Christ. And that's really kind of the theme of where he's going with this. There's an outline in there. You can look at that, but here's one for you. Sir Isaac Newton's. Law of physics. We have somebody with a PhD in physics here, do we not? This is correct. Tell me if I've got this correct. Sir Isaac Newton said, an object at rest remains at rest, and an object in motion remains in motion at constant speed and in a straight line unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. Right, okay. The PhD in physics <laughs> just confirmed. So check this out. I, if you look at 
a, a certain thing. This is called, um, it's, it skips my mind. It, it's uh, Newton's fulcrum, I think, is what it's called. There's something similar to that. Thumbs up. Yeah. And What? Newton's cradle. Newton's cradle. How many of you ever had one of these on your boss's desk and you're like, I know I shouldn't, but right? And that force that starts, it continues back and forth. In fact, I want to just show you uh, a video that my sons used to play for me when they were younger, and he's going to like this. You're going to love this. You guys are going to like this. Eva, you're going to love this, because this is the coolest example of how one tiny thing in, in motion can have an ongoing effect in a huge way. Check this out. Online, uh, we weren't able to stream that to you, I, th I think, but there was a link and you can take a look at it later. But all of that from, that's a combination of not only uh, Newton's law of physics, but it, it gained momentum and inertia as they used bigger stuff, but all of that from one little domino. Think about that. And James opens up his epistle by saying this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, and lacking in nothing. He starts out talking about when something impacts your life, a trial, to count it joy. That room represents some of your lives right here in this morning, in this, in this place. Some of you have been impacted by an abandoned parent, uh, a struggle with depression, followed by turning to a substance to self-medicate, turning to friends that had difficult and bad influences on your life, financial decisions that created another momentum that led to a crash. And I mean, you could look at that and you could flip it from this funny, fun thing into this whole, oh my goodness, that's the story of my life. It's just like, and I'm walking away, a cannon full of paint in my face with a bunch of nothing accomplished. Nobody likes a trial. And there are things in the English language called homonyms and homophones. There are words that are written the same that have different meanings, like bear, bear. Or there's homonyms. There's words that are written, that sound the same, but are written different, or homophones and then homonyms, where it's written new, N-E-W, and new, K-N-E-W. And so a lot of times in English, when we're reading the Bible, a lot of those get in the way of what God is really speaking, because it's coming to us through the English language from a completely different language, and we miss things. And some of those things, first of all, is joy. When I think of joy, I think of happiness. You think of happiness. America has packaged the word joy as having no problems and getting a big bonus of something extra so that everything is just great. And that's not what biblical joy is. Joy is a settled contentment that is steady in its trust with God. There's a difference between happiness and joy. And this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The joy that God can give you is one that looks and can even laugh in the face of your trials. When one little thing knocks over the next, you can say, that's all right, that's okay, because God will have the final word. 
And you may be in the middle of multiple trials right now. That room may uh, be the stage of your life right now. And I want to tell you this morning that God is with you. But it's important to understand that your attitude determines your altitude. This, this joy doesn't ignore reality. Uh, in fact, one of these obscure verses that I really appreciate in the Bible is talking about Abraham. You know, Abraham, who's 80, can't have kids. His wife's barren. God says, I'm going to give you a child. And it says this. It says, not that Abraham believed God, the promise because it was just a crazy promise, but he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And it, later on, it says this, Abraham faced the fact that he was beyond the age of childbearing. Here's the mistake of modern faith in understanding, is we think faith is that thing that we say, I'm going to just say the thing that I'm hoping for, and I say it enough, eventually I'll believe it, and if I believe it enough, then God will re reward me with a response. That's not, that's not what it is. In fact, true faith looks at the situation and says, I am facing a crisis. I am in trouble. I am in need. I got myself into it. Somebody else got myself into it. You face the fact, but your happiness isn't based on the difficulty you're facing. Your joy is rooted and grounded in the fact that you know that God works everything together for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And Northeast Christian Church, you are filled with this faith. This room is filled with so many of you who have faced the impossible, the challenging, the difficult, and you've just smiled back at it and said, that's all you've got. But yet we all can grow weary. And now, what's a, what, so when we think of joy, we, we, we miss what, what, what the Bible is saying because it's getting filtered through homonyms and and homophones in our language, and we can mix it up, but, but what's a trial? Um, I have no intention on being trial at, on, at any time in my life in this world, God willing. Trial's not a fun thing. Uh, it means that you're in court, right? But that's not the trial that God is talking about here. In fact, it's an attempt to learn the true nature and character of something. It's approving toward a goal of approving something's value. For instance, I don't know if you knew this, but a diamond, a true genuine diamond, is authenticated by looking closely and seeing that there are chips and cracks in it. So if you've ever gone to the store to buy a diamond, right? If you were that poor victim walking through Zales, and they're like, this is a pure diamond. Look at how clear that is. Um, zirconium has no flaws in it. You look at it, and it's actually a problem if you find a pure, clean diamond. And right now, there are ladies across this room looking down <laughs> and turning that diamond, saying, hmm. -mm. Trial is something that is testing out the quality of your gold. Do you know what makes something pure gold it is that it's boiled and more and more of the impurities and the alloys are removed from it until eventually it's pure, solid gold. So, so when you talk about refining something, it's, it's heating up that metal and they start by removing the dross 
the, the crusty stuff on top. And even as it goes to a more uh, refined process, it's boiled. And even in that boiling, there are little chunks that are floating to the top. And here's the interesting part of refining a metal, testing a metal. It's that it's only when it's in the heat and it's boiled that the impurities come to the surface. And so what they do is, is they, take a, they take a skimming uh, plate, almost like the thing you scrape out the, the soot from a fireplace, and they take off of the top what is called the dross. And here's the downside to this. If you go through the, the heat of a trial, what happens is, is it brings the impurities of who we are to the surface. I wish that I could say that I've seen the best of me in trials, but the truth of the matter is, is we begin to see the worst of us. Turn to your spouse and say, he's talking to you, <laughs> right? And that boiling is God's process to bring it to the surface so he can permanently remove it from your life. We shouldn't be running from trials. We should be allowing them to run their course. We shouldn't be boasting about our best in trials. We should be humble about the things within us still that God's trying to remove. And we all face trials of many kinds, just like that room. James says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I mean, you look at gold. When you dig it out of the ground, it's, it's got all kinds of garbage in it. But after you're done with it, it looks like that. It's pure. It's untampered. And there's a physics, a process to trials that God is trying to work into and out of our life. And it's a testing because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and, and it produces perseverance. So it's the process of God freeing you of all of those things that are deep inside of you that need to come out. Because when you remove them, it increases the quality. Maybe you've got a temper when pressure's on you. Maybe you're over-anxious and you struggle with faith. Maybe you're a very prideful person and you smile on the outside, but deep inside you're going around taking everybody's measurements and temp temperature and, and, and thinking higher of you than you ought. All of those things that, don't, that make us less like Jesus, God wants to put you through a trial to continue over and over again to remove those things. He wants to give you perseverance. And that's what James says in 1.3. He says, the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. And that Greek word, perseverance, listen to, the, listen to the term, successfully carrying a heavy load over a long period of time. When I think of perseverance, I don't, I don't, I don't, th I think of getting to a problem, getting the problem out of a way and taking a rest. Getting to a problem, getting the problem out of the way, having a longer rest. No. It's actually building up your strength and your endurance to hold on. One of the greatest examples of this that I saw recently was a movie called Unbroken. If you haven't seen it, it's the true life story of Lou Zamp Zamparini. And he was a World War II vet. Prior to that, he was an Olympic athlete. And he was in Nazi Germany when the last... Uh, Olympics were held. 
His real goal was to go to Japan to compete there where he knew he'd be ready. He considered his participation at the same Olympics where Jesse Owens broke world records. That was his warm-up to where he would go the following season to Japan and really make his mark. He had broken records at that place. And, and it, but, but as he was young, he was a troubled youth, and his brother knew if he didn't get his energy directed in the right direction, he would have gotten into a lot of problems. And I'll tell you, sport worship in America is a real thing. You gotta be careful that you don't worship sports because the percentage of kids that are gonna be professional athletes just not realistic. But there are great things that can come out of it where you can learn endurance, teamwork, perseverance, sacrifice. There are great things that come out of that. And so his brother got him running and he was breaking records in high school and he set a high school world record. Then he went off to the Olympics and he broke a, a world record for the fastest mile run in sand at that point. And then as he was desiring to go back to Japan, World War II broke out. While they were flying a bomber over the water in a search and rescue mission, it went down. And the beginning of his suffering started there, which would happen over the next three years. First, they were adrift in a, in a raft. And they were, thought, maybe we could do this, you know? The, the record at that time, I think, was like 27 days adrift that they had known about, military or whatever. It wasn't until 47 days later and one of the men dying that they, the two that were alive were picked up, not by the Americans, but by a Japanese ship. They took them after 47 days adrift, starving, dying of thirst, and beat them relentlessly for another six months, interrogating them, throwing them on a, still on a starvation diet, trying to get information out of them. And that was just the beginning of his sufferings because for the remaining three years, he was at a, a Japanese detention camp where he was under one of the most notorious Japanese camp directors nicknamed The Bird. And he would beat this guy continually. And as he was there, he made him run a race with one of the Japanese men. Now, again, he's starving to death. He's not in athletic condition. And he would just say, you're nothing. You're, you're a failure. And he would, he'd break his nose. He'd have to reset his nose. He'd break a bone. He'd have to reset a bone. All of this true story. And finally, after slave labor being in the POW camp, they were finally let go and set free. And the reason this man continued to persevere were two things in his life. One of them was his brother's statement to him when he was a kid running track. He said, Louis, if you can take it, you can make it. Can I just give you a really great piece of earthly wisdom that's about a hundred and something years old, but probably even older than that? If you can take it, you can make it. And that's the deal with trials. They're not meant to be comfortable. They're not meant to be easy. They're not, nobody's gonna hand you. If you're waiting for somebody to hand you the recognition you're looking for, you're never gonna see it. If you're waiting for somebody to give you a handout to make your problems go away, you're gonna be looking at empty hands for the rest of your life. If you're looking for somebody to relieve the pressure, guess what, it's not going anywhere. But I wanna tell you, if you can take it, you can make it. And that is the purpose of trials in our our life is to get the impurities out so we're more like Jesus, but it's also to put within you an endurance so that when the next trial comes and the next ones, you can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
There's a purpose in those trials. The other part was this, when he was adrift in the ocean, he, a storm, a hurricane hit. And he begged God, he said, God, if you get me through this, I promise you I'll dedicate the rest of my life to you. After he got out of the military and he went back home, he ended up getting married. He found himself at a Billy Graham crusade, gave his life to Christ. Billy Graham began to take him around and share his testimony. And then he started his own evangelistic testimony. And while he was planning to go to the Olympics in Japan and ended up being a prisoner of war in Japan, back in I think it was the early 2000s before he passed away, he was the carrier of the torch to start the Olympics in Japan. Such a beautiful story. Now, I, I can tell you what you're gonna, it, the next time it's raining or when you get back and you got nothing to do, forget that series on Netflix, watch Unbroken. Trust me, it's, good. it's a good one. But there's, there's more to this. Like, it's not just, you have to be mindful of some things in order to develop the perseverance that God has for our life. You have to be intentional. Nothing happens by accident. Problems don't solve themselves. Perseverance doesn't naturally happen. You've got to gear yourself up. You've got to have a plan. You've got to walk in with intentionality. And so it's important to understand God's purpose in trials. The difficulties in life, they're intended by God to refine our faith heating it to a crucible of suffering that impurities could be refined away so that it might become pure and valuable before God. The testing of your faith here is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. It's intended to purify faith that already exists. You're going to see trials and temptations. Why not let them have purpose in your life and develop a relationship with the God, the God who created it and find out what it's like when he works all things together for, those, for good for those who love him because he loves you. And it's time for you to start loving him back. There are distant mentors in our lives. There are mentors that we have direct, like my friend Chuck, who is a direct mentor in my life. Patty, thank you for letting me borrow him for so many years. But... I've come to learn something about the ability to have a trial, have a good result in our life, and it's called honesty. Craig Rochelle is a distant mentor that I listen to, and uh, I don't know him personally, he doesn't know me personally, but I've, his leadership podcast is awesome, and he said this one statement once, he said, you're only as strong as you are honest. If you're worried about looking good all the time, if you struggle to say, sorry, I'm sorry, but you're gonna be that person where somebody's gonna see you at a high school reunion, they're gonna be like, wow, he's just the same old person from high school. Never changed. Reputation is what people think you are. Character is what God knows you are. Nobody can change his mind about you. So who cares? Listen, I, I'm not saying this flippant or whatever, but if you have a poor view of me, I'm not going to lose sleep over that because I have a poor view of me. I know what I'm not, but I have a good intention with my life. My character is more important than my reputation, and I want God to continue to refine me because I know what I'm not as much as I know what I am. And that's a good place to stay low because if you do fall, it, it doesn't hurt as much. Some of us need to be more honest with ourselves. Your strength in your weakest hour is who you are. 
Stop the fantasy and embrace the reality of what you're not. But begin the process of counting it joy. Why does James say count it joy, you know, when you face trials of many kinds? Because there can be an intentional outcome in your life if you look at it from the right perspective, if you allow it to have its work. So many of us later on in the, in the chapter a little further, we won't read it, but, but James at one point he says, if anyone is tempted, let him not say that God is tempting me for God tempts no one with evil, nor is he tempted by evil, but each person when they are tempted, that by, they're tempted by their own evil desire in them. So many of us, so many times we look up to heaven and we're like, why are you doing this to me? Or like, God is testing me, God is tempting me. No, he's not. And James says, don't talk like that. What's wrong with you? You know why some of us are in the problems we're in and some of the forces that have hit us that have started the role going on? It was you. You got yourself in your own problem. You, you, you walked into that thing. Why? Because you and I have a sinful nature in us that wants the wrong thing. And so you pursue that and you get what you want. Be careful what you chase because you might get it. And it starts this inertia in the wrong direction. And James is like, listen, you got stuff falling all over the place and you, you, you're going through trials. Listen, go through the trial, count it joy, admit that you need work in your life, but don't be shaking your fist at heaven saying, why are you putting me, you're, you're doing this to me. You're punishing me. That's what James is actually saying when he's talking to us. He's saying, stop being down on God for something that some really, when it comes to the sin issue, is us getting ourselves in the problem we're in. That makes sense. Sounds harsh, but it's just truth. So then when you go through this, it just doesn't mean that you, you just have joy, but you need wisdom. And so James says this, he says, he says, uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach or without finding fault, and it will be given to them. I'm so grateful that God is not a conditional giver. It's not like I earn flyer points and then he'll give me a ride, you know? It's not like I have to pay for admission. This is a great thing. If you're here or you're watching online and you are a Satanist and you are a serial killer and you are absolutely out of your mind, and you want to be in your right mind, and you want change in your life, and you're tired of the way your life has been going, and you want change, and God says this, ask for wisdom, and I will give it to you freely without finding fault. And if God can give it to any of us in that situation, then of course he can give it to you if you're angry at your kids because you're tired of being a parent. <laughs> or you're a grouchy employee, or a maniacal manager. God says he'll give you wisdom without measure, without limit, without finding fault. You are not alone. God doesn't know who I am. I don't know who he is. Doesn't matter. Ask him for wisdom freely without finding fault. He will give it to you. The desired choice, listen, friends, the desired choice is not always the wise choice. Wisdom has three functions in our, our lives that James brings out. And it's one, it's to produce Christian virtue in our life, for us to be more like Jesus. Two, it grants what is, it is needed to stand in the test and therefore aid in becoming made more 
perfect or more capable and able to endure the trial. And then last and most importantly, it leads to life as opposed to the desire that we pursue that we're dragged away with that leads to death. It's a good thing. But he says this, he goes on, he says, but let him who ask in faith, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Now, what is he saying the doubter is like? Is he like the boat? No, he says he's like the wave of the sea. That's important here to understand. He's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man or double-minded woman, unstable in all their ways. If you're out in the ocean, I had one time when I was halfway into the Atlantic on a boat, and man, it was seriously, like they tied us down so that we wouldn't get swept off, and everybody was hacking their guts out. So I don't know if that's proper to say in church, but, but I didn't. Actually, I've got this, like, I've got, like, a strong gut for this stuff, but I was just, like, you know, that guy in Forrest Gump. Woo! <laughs> we were just going. But, but it, was, it was scary. The, the boat was going, and the mast was touching a wave, and then it would go over and touch another. I mean, it was just like, they, and they're designed ships, you know, they batten down the hatches, meaning you close it so the water doesn't fill the boat and sink to the bottom. They're, 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 res, they're resilient. But he doesn't say that there were like trials are like the boat and wisdom's like the boat or double-mindedness like the boat. He's saying it's like the wave. In other words, everything in your life is good so long as the circumstances are calm. But the moment something goes wrong, you're all over the place. In other words, the worst thing, the best thing in your life is that you could be driven by your Lord. The worst thing in your life is that you are driven by your circumstances, by your fear. by your desires, by your lack of problem, by your absence of problem. You see, genuine true faith is not something that is moved by what's going on outside of it. It is anchored inside by who's within it, Jesus Christ. And some of you have had your world rocked. And you've anchored your life and said, listen, true joy faces facts. I'm, I'm not happy about what happens. I'm not, I'm not glad about the fact of two people that were very dear to me that I lost. And the other day of, of the loss that I see right there, Jim and Jane, the loss of, of Mark. I'm not happy about that. But true faith is, is that we can say, but God. But God. We need endurance. And Lou Zamperini, which is great, I'm just going to spoil the movie for you. At the very end of his captivity, he made him pick up a road tie and hold it. And he said, if he moves, shoot him. If he falls, shoot him. And he kept them there. Minute after minute, half hour after half hour, hour after hour. 
and he was just waiting for a reason to kill him. And in a moment of perseverance, you know what the guy does? He goes, ah! <laughs> and he lifts it over his head. Oh, yeah, just like that. And, and he lifts it over his head, and he's holding it, and he's just, and the guy would always say, don't look at me, don't look at me. And he, he finally goes up to him, and he beats him. He never shoots him because he beat him by persevering. And listen, perseverance is a part of, of a godly life, and God wants to give it to you, and he wants to give you the wisdom to hold up under the weight that's on you, and you can do it. With Christ, you can do it. But there's another challenge to this is to think that money will cause your problems to go away. Let me say something. Whenever you read stuff in the Bible about money, um, some of the stingiest people I've ever met are poor. And some of the stingiest people I've ever met are rich. Here's the other side to it. Listen, some of the most generous people I've ever met are poor. And some of the most generous people that I've met are rich. It's really subject to your character. Rich people aren't bad people. They've been entrusted with a resource. And they, they, they need to steward that properly. You give me a million dollars, it'll be gone in a month. You give a million dollars to one of my mentors and he'll have $4 million in, in one year. But he says this, listen to what James says now. He's, we're talking about trials and perseverance and putting them in perspective. And he says, listen, count it joy. Let God get the impurities out of your life. And then he goes on and, he, and you know, he's looking back and he's saying, when you're going through that difficulty, know that God's refining you and you need wisdom. But also, let's just make sure that we're clear that money can't, can't solve all of your problems and... Uh, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because a flower, uh, like the flower and the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises and it's scorched, uh, scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. There's a spot that I've been in Israel where actually both... Um, Dave Munley from North Point and I stood in a wilderness and you look out at that wilderness and if you're there in March, it's beautiful. It's filled with flowers. If you're there in May, it's scorched. It's gone. It's, in fact, it looks like this in May. Gone. Before. After. It's gone. And then shepherds, he, leads me, he lays me down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. It's in a wasteland that the shepherd does this. It's not England or America. The shepherd goes from place to place where there might be grass and water because if they don't find it, they die. Your life's dependent on that leading of that shepherd. But he's saying, hey, listen, wealth, it's wonderful. Flowers are beautiful too. But as sure as you take a flower and leave it over time, sooner or later, it withers. And that's it. He's trying to put eternity in perspective. He's trying to say, hey, there's a difference between looking at people with value as opposed to looking at them with worth. Some of the treasures of our church barely have two pennies to rub together. But they are jewels. And some of the great people of our church have been entrusted with God with wealth. 
It doesn't make one person more holy than the other, more godly than the other, but what it needs to be is something that puts our life into perspective to know that money can't buy you happiness. It puts down a lot of down payments on sorrow, but <laughs> he's not trying to talk about money and rich people are evil, because later on he's gonna say, he's gonna say, hey, if you've got somebody who's a generous giver and you give them the best seat, and then you've got somebody who doesn't have anything to offer and you give them the junky seat, you're showing partiality. So it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are in this place, all are valuable and worth of a treasure to who God is. And that's not where we measure things from. It's a perspective on wealth that he's trying to give. And to sum this up, he says this. He says, blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here as we close. The whole, pro the whole process, let me do it, the whole process of trials. I, I, want, to, I want us to do, uh, when I think about the Lord, we got to do that. I love that song. When we think when we, how can I say this? He starts off with language that talks about refining metal, a test. And when we understand it and what it was intended, it, it's you and me. It's gold pulled from the dirt. Your value is already in you because of who you are and whose you are. But there's a process that God wants to put you through to increase a greater faith so that people, when they look at you, they're like, whoa, if that was me, I would have fallen apart. How, how are you holding yourself together? I mean, I know tears are pouring down your face in this trial and this difficulty. Nobody faults you for that, but, but you're, you're holding tighter to God. You're not holding looser to him. You have joy in the midst of your sorrow. You're not angry and blaming God. How, how is that? And you can look someone in the face and say, a long time ago, I said in my heart that heaven is real, that Jesus is real. And no matter what I suffer or go through, I'm going to thank him and I'm going to allow him to purify me trial after trial after trial. I'm not going to think of myself as something great. I'm going to think of God as being great. And I'm going to let him do the work and give me the endurance. And I'm going to hold up. If I can make it, I can take it. My friend Chuck, when he was 19 years old, was a heroin dealer and a heroin addict. It was in a 90 mile an hour car accident that snapped his back. They said, you'll never walk. And then he started learning how to walk. They said, you'll never, you know, you'll never be normal again. And he went through teen challenge and he got delivered from drugs, delivered from sin, gave his life to Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his life, he would walk like this. Chuck, one of the most gentle correctors I ever met in my life. He had a beautiful voice. It snapped his back, but it didn't take his voice. And everywhere he went, he would speak and preach about eternity. 
And then one day, and I know, I know I'm going to assume that you're watching right now, Dorothy and, and Patty and Chucky. And I, he was in his, he was in his house, his car broke down and he had to get it towed. So AAA showed up with one of those flatbeds with a chain. And so Ashley, his other daughter, I wasn't there that Chucky mom was gone, but Dorothy was there. They hooked the chain up and they began pulling the car up. And a man who had already been broken by a car, the chain snapped and the car rolled over him. He was on, he was on the, the hospital and died seven times there. Don Wilkerson, who the Wilkersons had always been a very close part of their life, especially the Brooklyn Teen Challenge. He walks into the room and he says to Patty, he says, Patty, this death, this injury will not lead to death, but to the glory of God. And by some kind of miracle, seven times he passed and came back. And then for the next 16 years after that, they've always been close in my life and I've always seen Chuck. I've never had a year go by where I wasn't spending and seeing him for a little bit. And I watched him struggle. I watched him continue to hold up and persevere when he felt like people didn't need him, when he felt like people didn't want him, when he felt even more, more useless because maybe people were seeing him through his injuries or all those kind of things. But then every once in a while, I just see him go, mm, if I can make it, I can take it. And he allowed God to continue to purify his life and remove the dross. And he never once ever made himself into somebody important or big, but he was usually the biggest man in the room. And God continued to do it. And here's the, the trick of this whole trial thing. James brings it back to a crown of gold. Why? Because you and I are in the crucible of trials and our life is the gold. And the crown that you forge that God puts back on your head is the one of a life that says, you're God and I'm not. I'm not looking for you to make my troubles go away. I want them to have purpose. I'm not going to be a fair-weathered worshiper that shows up in church when things are convenient and good. I'm going to be yours 100%. I give my life to you, Jesus. If I can make it, I can take it. And I believe here this morning there are many of you you're capable of so much more. But you need to be intentional with your life. You need to be intentional with your trials. You need to stop seeking God as the bailout God. He's not there to take you out of the trial. He's there to bring you through it. You need to stop living your life in fear and buffering your life and protecting it and avoiding life and you need to step out in faith again in your life and begin to allow things to go wrong but to allow God to make them right because the trials aren't going anywhere and the tragedies aren't going anywhere but the triumph waits for you in a crown of gold if you can make it you can take it You need grit again. You had it. God wants to get it back. There's a generation of young people in the other room that have no idea what it's like to walk up to school and home to school uphill both ways. 
We have a whole generation of young people lost to the wind. You know why? I think because we've done a poor job with our trials and our mentoring. We need to remind ourselves what they're all about. So as we stand across this room, we're going to start singing this song. And I'm going to encourage you to start making your way to the front here to do business with God. Maybe you've been blaming him for your problems. You need to be at this altar. Maybe you have been uh, saying God's doing this to me. You need to, to, to repent of that and get that right. You may be in the middle of all things falling apart and you're just one crisis away from coming unraveled. You need to just scream and push that board higher and say, God, give me perseverance. You might think that God has left you. You might be in the midst of depression. And it's got a python grip on you. And you have one breath left in you. You know what it needs to be? Thank you, Jesus. Because you are not a wave that is affected by your circumstances. And some of you, your victory for your depression is to stop looking at your circumstances of what's not happening in your life and start looking to your God who is refining it. If you can make it, you can take it. We're going to sing this, and this is going to be our anthem. When I think about the Lord, how He saved me, how He raised me, how He filled me with the Holy Ghost. Gosh, you need it. You need it. You can make it. God's going to turn your perspective around today. There's some of you, you're at the last knot on the rope. As we sing it, you need to run up here. Hope waits for you here in the presence of God. In Jesus' name. Thank you for being with us today. Be sure to listen to all our messages on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And follow us on ne-cc.org for all information and updates. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day.